This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by the Alex Theater. The Alex was built in 1922 during the golden era of movie palaces. Minor restorations in 1941, 47, 52, 58, 63, and currently to our present period of time. Hey, welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is the place to be for Seinfeld fans. This episode 35, in this episode we talked to Steve Summers, WFAN overnight host, a legend here in uh, the New York area. He's been with the station since its inception. Uh, Captain Midnight, the schmoozer. We had a great time talking to him. Enjoy this one, folks. Thanks for listening, pass it on. Follow us at uh, at this thirsty on Twitter. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Pass it on. Enjoy this podcast is making me thirsty. Steve Summers. Good evening to you, and how you be? We have with us today the iconic New York sports talk show host a legend on WFAN for more than 30 years since its inception. Captain Midnight, the smoozer, he's there, we're here. What is it already with these pretzels? We are going to talk a little S-E-I-N-F-E-L-D and a little S-P-O-R-T-S under the covers with a legendary Steve Summers. Thank you, Steve. And thank you guys uh, for having me, that's for sure. So Steve, um, this is the second time I've spoke to you. I don't know if you remember this, but... Geez, 24 years ago, you came on a college sports talk radio show with me, Villanova. You probably don't remember it, but we talked a little. I think it was the time with the Knicks and the Heat. They had the big brawl. Do you oh, remember? Sure. With, uh, yeah, with uh, Van Gundy on the leg of Alonzo Mourning. So you remember that, but you don't remember the show, right? Oh, no. I don't even remember really what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So, Steve, let, let's get to before. Listen, we know there's been a riff out there with Seinfeld, but let's just get to kind of the good stuff. Where did the the friendship with Jerry start? We heard there was a story about a, a grocery store after an SNL. Can you shed some yeah. light on that? Yeah, it, uh, I'm not sure the year. It was like maybe 90, 91. And I was watching, you guys are right, uh, I was watching Saturday Night Live, wasn't married at the time, single, and it was uh, sometime in the summer, it was very, very hot. I watched a, a, a Saturday Night Live. When it was over, I thought I would go right down about a half a block away to this bodega grocery store and get a pint of ice cream. And I was wearing shorts, wearing my uh, Mets cap, wearing a T-shirt, you know, had some sandals on and uh, as casual as can be. And it was still at like one thirty in the morning, still uh, very, very warm out. So anyway, I I'm going to get some ice cream and uh, I see two guys uh, standing, checking out the cereal. Uh, they, along with the cashier, they were the only two guys in the store. And, uh, I got the ice cream right away. Notice the two guys, one of them, Seinfeld, wearing a Mets cap. And I could only see a profile of him as they were both 
facing uh, the section where all the cereal was on the shelves. And uh, the other guy happened to be George Wallace. I didn't recognize him. What I found out later around the block from where I live, there used to be a comedy club called Catch a Rising Star. And I found out later the two of them were in there, um, you know, to uh, be part of an audience for some young comedians they wanted to see. So it was after one thirty in the morning, and they went into the store, get some stuff, I guess some cereal, and uh, and then go home. And anyway, so I kind of recognized with the right side of his head, because as I looked down the aisle, and again, the, the Mets cap was low on the forehead, uh, maybe covering his eyebrows, but he still looked familiar to me. Uh, George Wallace, his friend, and uh, another comedian, as you guys probably know, he uh, uh, I didn't know, recognize or know at all. Uh, but anyway, and I walked a little bit closer. I certainly didn't eat anything more than the ice cream, so I wasn't looking for any cereal. But for some reason, just noticing with the the bill of the cap low on the forehead, he still looked familiar to me. So I got a little bit closer, and I'm saying to myself, geez, this is Seinfeld. <laughs> so I took a card, and I haven't had a card that says WFAN or my name on it since then. Um, and, but anyway, I had, I was kind of new at the station. I mean, I had started in 87. This was 91, 92. So it was a couple of years, and we had business cards. And I always thought that if I met a woman, uh, that uh, I would give a business card until I realized that isn't really going to work. But I had a business card or two or three in my wallet, and I took one out, and I was going to walk up, which I did do, uh, to uh, this guy looking like Seinfeld. And I said right off the bat, with a card in my hand now, because I didn't think he was going to know who I was. I didn't even know if he knew anything about WFAN other than the Mets cap he was wearing. Didn't know what kind of a sports fan he was. I knew nothing other than he was a great stand-up comedian. And I said to him, are you Jerry Seinfeld? He did not turn to his right to look at me. He was still looking straight ahead. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, I just want to say I'm a fan of yours. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Steve Summers. I work at a brand new radio station. And as I was saying this, I handed him or extended my right arm with the card in it. He didn't make eye contact at all, looked a little low to his right, took the card, looked at the card, still not making eye contact with me at all. And I'd introduced myself. I said, I'm Steve Summers. I work at a brand new radio station, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I'm a big fan. And he looked, took the card, still with his body facing the cereal on the shelf, just a little nod to his right, never made eye contact, still looking down, took the card, looked up, looked over at me in the eye, and said, you're Steve Summers? I listen to you every night. I, uh, you know, I almost went a number two in my pants. Uh, I, I really, it blew me away. I couldn't believe that. 
and uh, if, uh, my right leg might have been shaking. I don't know. I, I was. I was a little bit intimidated, but I was absolutely shocked, seriously, that he knew my name, looked me in the eye, and said, you're Steve Summers? I listen to you every night. And that's really how it started. And then he introduced me to George Wallace, and we spent a few minutes talking. And that following Monday night, he called in as Jerry from Queens. And it started, you know, for a, a number of years, you know, a relationship on the air and uh, a few times off the air where he would invite me uh, to sit with him at a Mets game, which I did do. And um, and he would call in as Jerry from uh, Queens, even though he was uh, Jerry from Manhasset. But uh, the bottom line is that that's how I met him. Interesting. And that, Steve, that's so un- I feel like it's so unlike you, right? You went up to a celebrity, but it's really interesting that he called that next Monday. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and, uh, you know, even as a kid, I wasn't all that excited going to games, asking for autographs. That wasn't my kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and again, uh, maybe arguably for fear of rejection, but uh, I never was one for autographs going to games, even when I would go with my dad as a, as a youngster or my, my uncle Tevis, uh, my uh, mother's brother who lived upstairs uh, from us and in San Francisco where I was uh, born and raised, went to school, left San Francisco to pursue New York at the age of 19. So it took me a while to get here. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's touch on that, Steve, if you will. We want to kind of get a little bit of the history there in San Francisco. I know, uh, you know, you you started you started there at KYA in San Francisco. You were still in high school, right? Like, how did that? How did that? Even yeah, start? yeah. Well, uh, I came. I presented an idea to them uh, about high school sports, and this was a top forty station, so all the kids listened to it. Uh, there were two top 40 stations in San Francisco at the time, and KYA was one of them. And uh, I called them first, talked to the program directly, thought it was an interesting idea. You know, it was said, go to a couple of uh, high school games and uh, do a report on it, and we'll see what your voice sounds like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because I was so young and because I was also in high school, and because I listened to that radio station with uh, with all the top 40 hits that were going on at the time, you know, they ended up hiring me and I would end a newscast uh, uh, with a, a high school sports report. And that's where the fearless forecaster was born. And I still do that uh, to this day at WFAN. And I'll give you one quick little story back then. Uh, and one Thanksgiving Day championship for, you know, San Francisco high schools, you had a Lincoln High School uh, versus a St. Ignatius High School. The quarterback for St. Ignatius uh, was Dan Fouts. And uh, the quarterback um, uh, for uh, Lincoln uh, was a and turned out to be the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, uh, also the for, offensive uh, coordinator uh, for the San Francisco 49ers. And, uh, and can you guess who I'm talking about? 
coordinator for the 49ers? He was the mm-hmm. offensive coordinator for the 49ers. also coached uh, the Seattle uh, Holmgren. Holmgren. Yeah, yeah, right. And a good job on your part. And he also coached Seattle and, uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. So he was a quarterback uh, for Lincoln High School, and uh, Dan Fouts was a quarterback for St. Ignatius. And, again, both of them uh, turned out to be with a, quite an NFL career. And Fouts, of course, in the Hall of Fame. Awesome. So, Steve, just quickly, you mentioned, you know, you had the on-air stuff with Jerry, but he also invited you to games? Well, uh, yeah, uh, he wanted me to meet his wife and uh, a couple of his friends. He has a suite now, but uh, at the time I was, I only went to two or three games with him on a Saturday. Uh, I met him at the game. Gotta, I, didn't, I didn't go with him. What are you talking to Jerry with uh, about at a game? You got to give us some uh, some inside baseball here. Literally, what, what is sitting at the? Is that Shea? I'm assuming not City Field, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, I mean that happened on a, either a Saturday or, or a Sunday when I wasn't working, and I would meet him at the game, and all quite flattering. And I let me just say this: I wasn't, a, and he also invited my wife and I you know, to see him in Atlantic City uh, as a stand-up and to be uh, meeting him backstage where I met his agent, where I met his uh, manager. I mean, it was, it was quite impressive uh, and and quite uh, flattering. I mean, I, you know, not bad for the son of a grocer and, you know, not working uh, the morning show, not working midday, although I did do midday on the fan with Russ Salzburg for five years uh, from 95 to 2000, um, and, uh, and and that's a, a number of stories under itself. I used to say that working with Russ Olsberg was like working with a member of the family, the Manson family, or the Adams family. But uh, but uh, with Seinfeld, I mean, all of it was very, very flattering. And for a number of years, I mean, it, it uh, continued on. But let me make uh, make it clear, never really a part of his inner circle. I mean, I wasn't all of a sudden becoming, you know, his best friend. It was really more a radio relationship, a metropolitan Mets uh, relationship. And so it wasn't like, you know, I was being invited over for dinner or let's go to a comedy club, or let's go see a show. No, no, no. It was all business-related. And if he had something that he wanted to promote, you know, that's usually when he would call in. A lot of times I would make a call to him to come on just because a couple of months had gone by and we hadn't heard from him and some callers were bringing it up, and uh, he usually didn't have the time for that. So, but the bottom line is it went on for a number of years. And, and then when, of course, I asked him for the email of Larry David, and he had mentioned that he and Larry David wanted to come down to the studio one night and that Larry David was also a fan, big Yankee fan is Larry David, but uh, listened to WFA and listened late at night, et cetera, et cetera. So, I said, sure, any time, although that never happened. But when Curb Your Enthusiasm was rolling along and before the start of a new season, I'd asked Jerry for 
uh, Larry David's email, which he gave to me. And we had Larry David on. It was a fun interview, a terrific interview. Uh, Greg Giannotti was producing the show at that time. And so he could confirm how very good an interview it was. And Larry David was happy with it and was very complimentary at the end of the interview, said he would love to come on again, just call. So uh, a year or two goes by, whatever it was, uh, some time had gone by. And then I tried to email him again, and he had changed his email. So I emailed Seinfeld, and I, uh, Seinfeld wouldn't give it to me. And that's the story uh, that uh, that you guys are referring to. Uh, he wouldn't give it to me, and his response was, that's not what friends do. Well, I'm saying to myself, that is what friends do. Even if uh, we're only radio friends, he had given it to me, Larry David's email, at one time. How about a second time since it had changed? And Seinfeld uh, did acknowledge that he had changed his email, but that's not what friends do was his response. And I wrote back, I, I thought that is what friends do. I've had Larry on before, and because he's changed his email, I thought maybe you would provide it. When and, he, and he repeated the same thing. It's not what friends do. When was this, Steve, exactly? A couple of years ago. Oh, a couple of years. Oh, a couple of years ago. Wow. Okay. We had thought it was more. Yeah, amazing. and I never said anything about it on the air. Al Dukes broke that story. How, yeah. how do you think he found out about that? Well, I probably told it to my producer at the time. It could have been Paulie Rosenberg. It could have been Peter Hoffman, and they they are still producers. They don't work with me at the moment, but they're still there as uh, producers. And I'm sure that I might have told one of them the story, maybe somebody else in the sales department, you know, who might have asked me, you know, when's, when he could have Seinfeld on again, and so forth and so on, because the station always wanted to promote that. And I was all for that. I mean, in a way, that was like a shout out for me. That was a little publicity for me, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, I'm sure... But I never said anything on the air. And because, you know, it would have sounded maybe like sour grapes or I'm trying to pick a fight. And I just thought that I would let it go as something between him and me. So I'm sure that's how Al Dukes found out about it. And then they mentioned it on the air. And then I got a call, of course, as you know. And uh, here we are. So, so this happened a couple of years ago. Interesting. So if, if that's the case, then you and Jerry have not had any correspondence since then, it sounds like. Oh. And, uh, furthermore, I mean, just recently, uh, we saw somebody bring it up to Jerry, you know, what we're exactly talking about right now. And they asked if there was any issues there with Jerry and the smoozer. And Jerry said, no, he just responded, nope, not an issue at all. So he, he doesn't think there's anything going on here. Maybe we need to... Uh, I don't know. This is interesting because if it was a couple of years ago, maybe reach back out and and we'll see how it goes. Oh, and and I, this is the first I'm hearing about him responding because I don't care at this point. In other words, sure. you know, in 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 the very very beginning, you know, I don't want to cut off my nose to spite my face because 
not only did the station like having him on, but also some listeners. I I, I will say uh, that he never was really funny when he was on with me. Whether and he came in one day, two uh, one uh, two days, he was in the studio with me, uh, and he tried to prove more that he was a serious sports fan and and left the humor, you know, out, outside the station. And I would try to bait him a little bit, try to get him into getting into some funny stuff, and he really wouldn't respond that way. And he wanted to either talk about the Mets seriously so or other sports seriously so, and never was funny, but still, it was Jerry Seinfeld, and still, you know, it was terrific for all of us at the radio station that if he wasn't sitting in with us, he was certainly on the air and, um, you know, promoted earlier in the day. Mike and the Mad Dog uh, would have said something. And one, uh, the first time he came into the station, uh, Mike and the Mad Dog had me and Seinfeld on at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, for an hour, hour and a half, however long it was. And as great it was, as great as it was to have him on, uh, it wasn't very funny and uh, made for a little bit of a serious interview, which is okay, too. I mean, he could do it any way he wanted to. All I was doing was, uh, you know, throwing things out to him where he could have responded in a funny way and or take it seriously, and he took everything seriously, whether he was calling me later at night or even that very first time he came into the station and uh, Mike and the Mad Dog gave me the last hour, hour and a half of uh, their program because it was Seinfeld. And the entire station, the sales department, the engineering uh, department, uh, the, uh, the administrative assistants, the secretaries, part-timers had all congregated uh, into the newsroom uh, to meet Seinfeld. So it, it was uh, quite a moment uh, the first time he came on down. Well, Steve, listen, between us, we'd rather meet you any day of the week. But it, it had to hurt a little bit, right? You guys kind of you went on double dates. You went to Atlantic City. You went to Met games. Like, you know, we well, all... I, I was angry. I mean, yeah. after... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, heard a little bit, I guess, but it upset me more. I mean, uh, and maybe it shouldn't have, but but it did because it was ridiculous. I mean, I figured after all this time, and there were so many times, by the way, guys, where I would, you know, call uh, and leave a message. He wouldn't return uh, the call. Sometimes he would uh, pick up. And we would talk, and I would ask him, you got five minutes, let's talk about the Mets, you know, let's do this with Matt Harvey, whatever it may be. And uh, he wouldn't come on, but he would call me when he had something he wanted to promote. And that's usually the way it was uh, for the most part. And again, more a radio relationship. He listened to the fan. Uh, he didn't like some of the other programs I uh, didn't like the fact that I was taken off 10 to 1. Um, we agree. Uh, we agree with that, well, Steve. Well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think I work better alone. Uh, uh, I, what, what, I, what I would have liked is if they had teamed me with another partner. 
and uh, Salzburg had worked by himself in that 10 to 1 spot uh, for two years. And as Mike Breen, who was on the IMA show at the time doing uh, sports, he said the only people listening to Salzburg was his family. And uh, the idea of, I didn't even want to be taken off overnight. I was having a good time. Uh, all the shtick was working. I felt comfortable. Uh, I didn't think I was going to like it in the beginning. Nobody had ever done overnight sports talk anywhere. And this was, as you guys know, with WFAN, the first all, all sports 24-7. And I was the very first guy working midnight to 6. And it worked, and it was working. I used to call my mother and my father when they were alive in the very beginning saying, you're not going to believe it, but it seems like I'm not going to get fired, uh, at least not too soon. Everything seems to be okay. Everything seems to be working. I'm getting automatic feedback, and people are calling in, and it's been a positive reaction. I was getting good press right away in the very beginning more, and there had been no Mike and the Mad Dog yet, and no uh, Imus yet. Uh, Greg Gumbel was the morning guy. Jim Lampley was the midday guy. And they they didn't even care about radio sports in New York. They were just biding their time until they got their next TV gig. And uh, I was getting a lot of positive reaction, and here I was in the middle of the night, and I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, New York being 24-7 and the city that never sleeps, I didn't even realize in the very beginning that more than just, you know, bartenders on the way home and uh, late night uh, people, I mean, uh, the, the, I mean, the ratings were for an overnight program you know, very solid, and I was making a little bit of a, of a name for myself and discovering my style. Um, I'd always been pretty much the same, but I came to WFAN after 17 years of doing TV work. In fact, I was the very last hire at WFAN. They weren't sure if they were going to have live programming overnight, whether they were going to have syndicated programming overnight or whether they were going to repeat daytime programming overnight when they finally decided 24-7, let's give it a shot with a sports talk program. And we were doing the shtick with the production pieces and sound effects and with music and, you know, having a lot of fun. And it was sort of like for me, uh, you know, and I had monologues for the top of every hour at midnight, at one, at two. It was twenty four seven for me. My and 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 it was working. And you know, you can work very hard, and you can do uh, all the necessary research and preparation, and you can do as good as you can do uh, with all the energy and all the passion and still fail. So you have to be good at whatever it is you're doing 
And you also have to be lucky, too. Yeah, and you are the best at what you were doing, Stephen. I was one of those people listening on the overnights in 1989. I'm 11 years old, up at midnight listening to you, Captain Midnight. And uh, this is incredible talking to you right now. But your your monologues, you brought them up. I mean, your monologues with the music and, and just the way you weave it all together, it's, it's poetry, it's comedy, it's incredible. Um, you know, you... You have you have that comedic you know that comedic sense with those monologues is obvious there. I mean, I can see how you know you definitely put the work in on them and uh, you know. Well, that's uh, very you know, and, and and I'll be honest with you, and it's not and it's not false humility at all. I mean, I'll kill myself if uh, they don't work, and a lot of them don't work, and when they do, you feel like a million bucks. That's for sure. When when you hit all the right notes and, and you mentioned something which is key. That it's not so much the writing because as you guys know in radio uh, people only hear anything you're saying once although we all repeat things of course but if you're doing an opening monologue and you're writing it out as I do, uh, the bottom line is they're only going to hear it once. So the writing is not very fancy because in radio you're writing for the ear. If you are writing for the eye, like for a newspaper, a blog, whatever it may be, you can reread a paragraph if it doesn't make any sense or you want to get clarity on it. But with radio, they're only going to hear it one time unless you repeat the monologue later on. But uh, for the most part, it really is more with the delivery. But I listen, and you guys are, are going to be very kind, of course, with the with the monologues, and some of them are good. They work, uh, as I say, you hit all the right notes. But when they don't, I mean, it's just awful. So it's kind of risky doing it the way I do it. But I've never met a piece of paper I didn't like. <laughs> Steve, you know, you mentioned overnight and kind of. You were synonymous with that, but you took the gamble, you moved with Sweater, and that obviously created a career for Beningo, but you and the Sweater were great. Something I always wanted to ask, it was Tim or you, you always reference, and I know you're happily married now, the Hawker. Oh, yeah, the Hawker from Hackensack. Yeah, exactly. Was that your, your, I know you were a legendary bachelor. I actually knew, I I worked with a girl that supposedly dated you back in the early 2000s. Um, (laughs) But, uh, I, tell, I, tell, I tell people I got married because I ran out of excuses. <laughs> but, but, so is the hawker, is that your your wife? Yeah. Uh, her real name is Robin, and uh, and she really is from Springfield, at uh, uh, New Jersey. And at one point, uh, she did live for about a year uh, in Hackensack. So, you know, I mean, the alliteration there, the hawker from Hackensack, mm-hmm. and she's still hawking. Although she's now the hawker from Manhattan. <laughs> so we mentioned Salzburg. Um, it seems like you had a good relationship with him. What about some of these other guys? You know, Francesa, obviously people love to hear your relationship with him. Um, what are your thoughts on Big Mike? Robin has just come over uh, to the phone here because she heard oh. me say she's now the hawker from uh, Hackensack. I'm doing uh, my... Uh, my. <laughs> she, she's <laughs> I wish I could hear as well as she does. You know, <laughs> she was upstairs. We don't have a McMansion, but we do have a little bit of a duplex. With uh, and, and she's upstairs. She's on the phone. 
She's always on the phone with the sister or her <laughs> mother, who is 91. And she's come down to make sure that I don't get out of line and say too many things. <laughs> she wants to say hi. She can hop on if she wants to say hi. And, and yeah, she's mom. right here. Want to say anything? She already said some things out of line. Well, what did I say? No, that was... no, well, no. Oh, that was some... fun. <laughs> he goes, he's going, oh, it's all in fun. Yeah. yeah. I'll hear about it when this is over, guys. <laughs> I am not the king of my castle. None of us are. Yes. But anyway, no. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I, I like to tell people, <laughs> that's probably what she objected to. It's a one-liner that I've even used on the air. I got married because I ran out of excuses. What is it? <laughs> so... I guess Robin had to be impressed that, you know, while you were wooing her, you were bringing her to Shea Stadium with Jerry Seinfeld and wife, right? Uh, well, yeah, and we also were invited to see him, as I mentioned to you, uh, in Atlantic City when he was doing a stand-up there and uh, and sitting in the VIP. Robin was more comfortable. I was nervous, you know, uh, getting that kind of treatment, going backstage uh, before he was going to perform, and and uh, and Jerry introducing Robin and me to his agent and manager, and some of the other people putting makeup on him, and all this kind of stuff. I was nervous. I mean, I, I really, I wasn't. You know, it just it seemed like, what is going on here? I mean, is this me going through this? Uh, and then again, it it was a. Uh, a lot of fun and very flattering, of course. I'll tell you this, more flattering to be on with you two now than it would be with him now. I'll tell you that. Well, <laughs> that's great to hear. And Steve, we would... Without speech. We're without speech. And, you know, can we get his email or is that uh, what friends don't do? <laughs> well, uh, and uh, he probably changed his email so I don't get it anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think... Uh, I mean... I don't. I, how did you find out? I mean, somebody was getting an email about any differences between the two of us, and he said no. Yeah, that was that was posted to uh, Twitter last week, and Jerry doesn't. He typically doesn't engage much, but you know, there's been so much talk on the morning show and on on your late night show that someone flat out asked him, and he he denied it. So uh, we actually invited him on. Um, you yeah, know, did he and, and what did he say no to that also? Yeah, he ignored well, he didn't it. Necessarily no, yeah, exactly. He just ignored it. But uh, yeah, we gave a couple of in invitations out, and uh, yeah, he we wanted to come on and you know bury the hatchet, if you will. But uh, well, uh, see, uh, there were a lot of times he didn't come on with me when I was asking him. <laughs> so uh, welcome and, to the club. And you I had mean, and you had ratings, Steve. That's the difference. Yeah, well, um, no, I mean, you know, I don't know if I had the kind of ratings that the other shows had. You know, when you're working late at night, you don't have the same kind of audience that uh, day parts are going to have. So, you know, um, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, I, I, again, I mean, I can't tell you how many times. I would reach out, and uh, he wasn't going to be uh, coming on for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, speaking of your audience, I mean, you have you have one of the you know most devoted audiences out there. I would say on the fan at this point. I mean, um, 
We were just going to get your take maybe on some of your uh, some of your favorite callers out there. You know, Miriam or, or Doris, Omar from Brooklyn. Uh, who sticks out to you? Who are some of your uh, you know callers you really enjoy when they're when they're calling in? Well, it's anyone who doesn't complain about uh, about me. You know, <laughs> I, I've, lately I've been getting a couple of Trumplicans uh, calling uh, that uh, because they know that during this past summer. When there was no sports on, uh, we were trying to follow uh, with the virus and the COVID-19. And, of course, the mask became political. The virus became uh, political. And I never, even as a kid, growing up in the 60s, was very political at all. Exactly. And you had the Vietnam War. You had the Kennedys assassination. JFK and Bobby, Martin Luther King, and there were people protesting, and then there were riots, and, and I mean, it was a you terrible... Were, uh, you were terrible. in Berkeley, you know, during all that. You were in the heart of all that, right? Oh, yeah, sure. What's, yeah. You got any stories from that time? You know, hate Well, uh, other than I wanted, you know, I was a broadcast uh, uh, major, and uh, in broadcast communications, and wanted to become a sportscaster. If you looked at my high school yearbook, uh, my graduation picture, uh, it said ambition, New York sportscaster. And uh, that was my dream. That was my goal. That was my destination. And when I first started, first night uh, at WFAN, I said uh, all of this and a little bit more. And uh, over the years, people have seen that graduation picture with the ambition New York sportscaster there because I thought New York sports was the cream of the crop. I thought broadcasting here was with the best and it is best. And uh, I know I love to say about New York, uh, it's the best and the worst of everything. And if you can't find it here, you don't need it. And uh, the bottom line is uh, it took me a long time to get here, and I used to say, and did say on the air, that uh, the flight from California uh, to New York is about five and a half, six hours, but that flight took me 22 years. So, I, you know, people ask me now, do you want to retire? And I say, how do you retire from talking? And it is still a passion, still something I so enjoy. I mean, the hours are crazy. There's no question about it. But I've always been a night person. Even when I was in school, I did most of my homework at l- late at night and, you know, studied for exams late at night and so forth and so on. So always been somewhat of a, a night owl. Uh, and I only need about three and a half or four hours of sleep. So if I'm working these kinds of hours that I do, I can still get things done during the day. And Steve, you've you've probably always been on California time, so you're okay there. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, you mentioned sports, and just to tie it, tie it back to Seinfeld a little bit, the actual show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some of our favorite episodes have the sports twist in it, right? Whether it's you know. David Putty dressing up uh, in the devil's uniform, a lot of the Yankee oh. references, even Keith Hernandez. Oh, sure. Were you a big, forget about Seinfeld, the, the comedian, like the actual show. Um, no, you, I, wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of the show. I didn't think it was funny. Really? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, went over my head, I guess. You're the honey, and, your honeymoon uh, is your show, right? Yeah, well, some of the episodes I did see that I could identify with, like with Hernandez, and, and I know Hernandez a little bit, and so we would talk about what it was like when he was doing the show, and, and he knows that I know that episode. But I didn't, well, some of it, I, I, well, first of all, uh, when that show was on, so was a lot of games. Uh, so I was always in the evening watching games, uh, whether it was the Mets, whether it was the Yankees, whether it was the Knicks, whether it was the Rangers. So a lot of the, a lot of his shows, I would like at, at the end of the first period of a Ranger game or in between innings, I might uh, switch over to see a couple of minutes and then switch right back to the game. And I did not laugh out loud, and I know uh, it was as popular as any sitcom that's ever been, but I didn't think it was anything close to the Honeymooners. I didn't think it was anything close to all in the family, but it was a show about nothing, and I didn't get too many laughs out of it, to be honest with you. (laughs) So uh, that's interesting. I mean, we thought I thought that was I remember hearing that from you once, but that's really interesting to. Well, uh, I know that's a little bit surprising. Yeah, I never, you know, uh, everyone's got their taste. I mean, you know, you can't argue with the honeymooners and all in the family for sure. But oh uh, yeah, but I'm just saying. I mean, but I understand how popular it was. If you talk to Richard Ackerman at WFAN, the Update guy, he has just about every episode memorized. If you were to bring up to him any given episode, he'll recite the dialogue. Yeah, that's that's our kind of fan. Um, speaking of those sports you were watching all those times, not uh, watching Seinfeld. Um, 94 Rangers, is that the highlight for you? Just trying to get you, your, your favorite New York sports moment maybe. In oh, well, yeah, that and nine, after 9-11 with the Piazza home run. I was at that game seven with the Devils, the uh, Eastern Conference uh, Finals, and I was at Shea the night that Piazza hit that home run 10 days after 9-11. I had tears in my eyes. In fact, everybody at Shea had tears in their eyes when Piazza hit that home run. That home run in that game, uh, even with heavy heart, uh, and you don't have to wait to 9-11 to remember uh, all those who lost their lives and, and, and the first and second and third and fourth and fifth responders and all the people that made 9-11 as horrific and heroic as it was. And nobody ever forgets on any given day. But what that game with the Mets and Braves and the Piazza home run was to me what it signaled. It was a sign that with heavy heart and with mourning and all the grieving, we could move forward uh, in their memory. And that game to me was that uh, just that a signal, a sign that yes, with heavy heart we could move forward never forgetting uh, those uh, from 9-11, but we could now move forward maybe because there was so much joy and it was like a catharsis. It was, you know, so needed uh, uh, some joy 
some excitement, some smile, some happiness. And with everybody with tears in the eyes and how the Mets came back on the dramatic home run, uh, again, we could now maybe, maybe, maybe not for families who may have lost uh, loved ones, the mourning and the grieving will always be there. Uh, but I've always felt personally in losing my mother and my father uh, that when you hear me, you hear them. And I remember when I first lost my mother, what my father told me, and he said she would be very upset if you spend the rest of your life grieving and mourning all the time. And she would be very proud of you if you continued to move forward in her honor. And when my dad died in 2003, I thought of what he said to me when my mother died in 94. Well said, Steve. And I mean, from two Yankee fans here experiencing that Piazza Homer, we completely concur. And I, I remember getting my parents tickets to the 01 World Series. Um, and again, to your point, emotion, we were, people were hugging strangers. It was, it was, yeah, that was a moment that you can't, you, amazing. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, no, I understand because it does take, uh, your breath away and it uh, can't make you speechless. Uh, I mean, but uh, again, I mean, uh, uh, I, it was a moment really, not just a Met moment per se. It was a New York City moment. And the Yankees certainly did their part. They were on the road when they were going to play next. The Mets were not. And you got when the uh, Yankees did just as much uh, for uh, for everybody, for the city of New York. I mean, the Yankees front and center, along with the Mets, uh, you know, uh, whether it was just helping families, talking to families, et cetera, et cetera. Both the Yankees and the Mets did the right thing after 9-11. Are you, Steve, like, again, I think that was just classic New York, you know, camaraderie, getting together. Are you still into sports the way you were? I mean, the nonsense, the Harden, Deshaun Watson, all, all these guys demanding trades. I know this existed years ago as well, but are you as into it as you were? 20 years I ago? Still, that's a great question. You know, because I think uh, Beningo ran out of gas. He was talking on the air about retiring, playing golf, going to Florida. I still care. It still means something to me. And, I, and it keeps me young in a way. And uh, again, how do you retire from talking? And <laughs> Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you have bad shows. There are days you don't want to get out of bed, uh, days you don't have the same energy, not as much excitement to talk about, per se, as opposed to other days, other nights. So, but overall, as a sports fan and as a broadcaster and having, you know, it took me 22 years to reach a dream, a destination, a goal. And I don't want to give up on it just yet. It's still, 
matters to me. It's still something I care about. And passionately so, I'm excited to see the Mets. You know, they're, they're, tonight, they're this close to getting Trevor Bauer with uh, the latest news that I was hearing right before coming on with you guys. So the Dodgers may come come, uh, come with a, a last-second uh, offer, but the Mets, from what I'm hearing, have offered a, a three-year contract for around $100 million with a first-year opt-out, so that the first year might be somewhere for Trevor Bauer in the neighborhood of $37 million, and he could opt out after that one year, uh, or he could stay on in year number two and year number three for around $31.5 million to make it $100 million over three years. That's Francesa money, Steve. It is. It is. So you just mentioned, Steve, the, you know, you still have to actually obviously have the passion still and, and the want. Um, is, is working from home right now uh, helping that or hurting that? I mean, do you want to get back in the studio? Is there more energy there? Are you feeling it more there? Or is it actually kind of nice to just kind of... Well, you get used to it. That's also a good question. Uh, you get used to it. You know, I mean, I can't always see about uh, the callers on the line. Uh, so uh, there are technical issues that come into play. Uh, but I, I used to, uh, because I got off late, I used to drive into work and then drive home. If I was getting off at 1 or getting off at 2 or getting off at 5 so or 6, so I would drive home. Now I tell people I get three weeks to the gallon of gas. <laughs> that's a good point so that's a benefit uh, and uh, so I mean I'm home and uh, this last summer I tell people I, I did some traveling and so people would ask me where I traveled I traveled from the kitchen to the bedroom <laughs> from the bedroom right to the bathroom bathroom back to the kitchen Back uh, to uh, the uh, computer room and so forth and so on. That's the kind of traveling. Uh, but uh, uh, the bottom line is that, uh, yeah, there are advantages uh, to being at home. And I, but I do miss socializing with the people at work. You know, I miss seeing the friends that I have there and the coworkers that I have there. And it's really more if you're there at the station it really makes you feel like you're really on the radio instead of in the kitchen. <laughs> Steve, who are, speaking of work, you know, WFAN has been very gracious to this podcast. Who are some of your, some of your best friends? Eddie Scazzari comes to mind. Um, you mentioned Bob Husler and I are very good friends. Mr. Matt. Oh, Mr. Matt. Yeah. Mr. Oh Matt. yeah. Mr. Matt. We're very good friends. We've gone to games together and talk during the day on occasion and so forth and so on. And he's, he and I, uh, he did some work at Yale University and a couple of years ago had me speak to some broadcasting students at Yale at Davenport College, which is a part of Yale University. And uh, that was a, a highlight. Uh, oh, no, Bob and I are, are very, very good friends. And we, we we talk shop and 
you know, I, I knew his family very well, and he knows Robin very well, and, you know, we've gone to games together, talk shop, the whole thing. And uh, But most of the guys there know how much I need their help and how much, you know, uh, help they provide. And uh, the guys on the other side of the glass or on the other side of the kitchen, uh, they I need their help and uh, will uh, talk about them and uh, help them in any way I can, whether it's some over the years looking for other jobs. I want them to use me as a reference because when I was a kid, you know, some of the veterans in the business did that for me. And I know that nobody can do it alone. I don't care if you're Howard Stern. I don't care if you're Imus. I mean, you know, I mean, today you guys can do your own technical, and I'm not as technically as literate as I should be, but I get the help with producers and board operators. I mean, you can't do it alone if you're doing, a, you know, this kind of radio. So I appreciate all the help I get, that's for sure. Of course. In your in your thirty plus years uh, on the fan, what sticks out to you as one of your, uh, you know, one of your favorite interviews there with someone you've had, or, you know, a get that you got and you were happy with? Like, you know, for us, this is uh, this is our biggest get we could get. So I'm asking, you know, who was one of your biggest gets or your best interviews that you thought you might have had? Well, I don't even know if I've done a best interview. I mean, there have been a lot. Of it. That's a great question, also, guys. Uh, and Phil Rizzuto twice well, it was a great interview and he kept calling me schmoozer the whole way through <laughs> uh, early on uh, Larry David of course uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, Y.A. Chittle the former Giants uh, quarterback um, John Ziegler Jr. was maybe the most notable interview I've ever done and that was the first year I was at the station. He was the commissioner of the NHL, and he was scheduled to be on with Howie Rose at 10 o'clock in the evening. And he didn't call in. And Howie did his show saying, well, I guess we're not going to have the commissioner of the NHL on. Well, he called me about 1.30 in the morning, completely drunk. And I wanted to talk to him about the three hockey teams in the area. And he kept saying, you're asking personal questions. And I'm saying, no, I'm asking questions because here in New York, we have three hockey teams. And I'm only asking what the fans would be asking you. And he kept saying he was going to hang up. And I kept saying, don't do that. We have listeners who are fans of three hockey teams in New York City. And mine was new, and I didn't want to get fired. I wanted to follow through. I was wanting him to stay on the line. I was sweating. I, and the, for an hour and a half, I was begging him to answer these questions when he kept threatening throughout the hour and a half that he was going to hang up on me. Well, to make a long story short, eventually uh, he was fired as commissioner of the NHL, and part of that firing was because of him being inebriated with me on the air at WFAN. And this was in the spring of 1988, 
So the, the station wasn't even a year old, and they replayed the interview the next day during the daytime, the entire hour and a half, with me begging him to stay on the line and him thinking that my questions about officiating, about the Rangers, about the Devils, about the Icelanders, they were too uh, close to home. I should be more of a homer, uh, more of uh, asking more positive questions. I don't like your attitude. I don't like your questions. I'm going to hang up. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. I'm asking these questions because these questions would be asked by the hockey fan of New York City. So I'm asking for them and trying to get any kind of response from you as possible. And he goes, I don't like your attitude. He was inebriated. And, and we, that, that made part of the dynamic of the interview. I mean, that's what's special about you, Steve, is, you know, especially working overnights, you probably get a lot of inebriated calls. But um, that well, not, as many, not as many as you think. I do get some, yes. That, uh, uh, but uh, you'd be surprised uh, of how t- articulate uh, I've been surprised the last couple of nights, but again, you know, you guys are right. No, you get the uh, inebriated, you get a little crank, you get the crank calls and so yeah. forth and so on. But I'm surprised that a good many of them are, are articulate uh, calls from very passionate fans. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the respect you built, to be honest. And I think you go back to '88. That's when it was 10:50 uh, a.m., which uh, yeah, right. we go back. I think about you, I mean, you mentioned meeting Jerry actually back in like 91. He didn't know who you are. He didn't know who you look like. And we didn't know he looked like either. I think so much has changed, right, since the, the internet era. And now oh sure, you kind of have this, look, I didn't know Mike, I thought Mad Dog looked like Danny DeVito in my head, you know, but. <laughs> um, they, like, they had the greatest radio, uh, greatest sports talk radio program I've ever heard. You think so? Uh, they, they were appointment listening. I, 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 I thought the two of them uh, uh, were great in their prime, and Russo is still uh, going on and strong, and uh, and Francesca ran out of gas, obviously, but uh, <laughs> needed uh, needed to retire. And he's also uh, also had gas a lot from all the coke he was drinking. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is. Uh, best radio show, uh, best sports talk radio program I've ever heard. Yeah, and they had a great lead-in with uh, Sweater and the Schmoozer. But the uh, do you ever get, I mean, now that people know what you look like, like, do you, do you get stopped on the street with, with, um, with you it and happened, it, it happened today when I went out to do a little bit of grocery. It doesn't happen very often, really. You know, so people will recognize the voice uh, if I'm talking to a bank teller, the person behind me, um, uh, are you Steve Summers? But it happened today on the street, and I'm wearing a mask. I got my winter coat on, you know, uh, with a turtleneck underneath and wearing my black mask, and somebody stopped me on the street today, and really seriously. Very flattering, of course. And uh, they gave me the thumbs up and the schmoozer. They're saying, 
and uh, you do a nice job, and that was about it. And, but I'm flattering, but that, and take my word, it doesn't happen very, very often. Um, uh, and again, over the years, you know, I, I'll tell you where it did happen a lot, going to Shea Stadium. And uh, once went to uh, a game where I was going to sit with Evan Roberts and his father, and everybody was coming over to get an autograph. I was sitting in uh, in a seat that uh, normally uh, uh, Evan's sister would be sitting in, but she was in Florida uh, in school. And so I sat in her seat, and everybody cared. And Evan was very new. Uh, he'd be getting all the autographs now. But one after the other after the other was coming over, and Evan later that day with his dad saying, yeah, I was like a rock star. And if I went to the bathroom, I was followed. If I went to a concession stand, uh, I was followed. And if I went to a game with Hussler, I was followed. And with Robin, I was followed. So that was where I was really recognized uh, more than anything else. But every now and then, a uh, cab driver, if I was taking a cab for whatever reason, I normally take the subway, take a bus. But if I had to take a cab, uh, most of the cab, uh, cab drivers would recognize the voice. Sometimes uh, at a checkout, you know, at at, uh, at a grocery store, at a supermarket, uh, any checkout at any store, if there was any conversation uh, with me and the checkout person, somebody in line would recognize the voice. But it doesn't happen all that often. Not really. Take my word. Yes. So someone. So you're in San Francisco. You're in San Francisco. You, like you said, it took you 20, 20 something years to get to New York, and that was, you know, your yeah. even back yeah. then. So yeah. Yeah. how did that New York connection, you know, kind of start with you out there in San Francisco as a kid? Like, what Steve Summers as a kid doing? What is he thinking? Is that your goal to get to New York, and how did that kind of? Yeah, by happen? the time I was in high school, uh, I knew right from the get-go what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it. Um, and I, uh, 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 people thought I was from back east when I was in high school. Uh, they would some might think New York, uh, but back east it was what I heard a lot. You originally from back east, and I. Was uh, I was sarcastic all the time, a little bit abrasive all the time, had a big mouth all the time. And when you're young and you have a big mouth and you get older, they call it talent. So, but I, it was my humor. And I think being ethnic, where people were saying to me, are you from back east? In a Spanish class in high school, if we, if we saw flies on a, on a warm day with the windows open while the Spanish class was going on with the teacher and I could see some flies, I'd raise my hand and uh, be called upon and uh, the teacher would say, what is it? And I go, I see these flies. Are these Spanish flies? You know, that kind of thing. So I'd get a few chuckles out of the class. Teacher would reprimand me and, uh, you know, save the humor for recess and so forth and so on. I thought it was uh, a nice connection. If you're if you're in a Spanish class and you're seeing some flies from outside uh, coming into the room, uh, would they be Spanish flies, possibly? <laughs> yeah. So we'll wrap with this, Steve. We just want to uh, 
Well, first off, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, this yeah, we, we couldn't. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Thank you so if much. There's any, if there's any message you want to send, Jerry, you let us know. Well, uh, first of all, guys, thank you very much uh, for having me on. That means a lot. And uh, if uh, Jerry wants to call me, there's a good chance I'll take the call. Um, Thanks, guys. After midnight. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys, very much. Have a good night. You too. Love you, Steve. All right. Bye bye.